Thank you so much, brothers. Thank you so much. Good morning. It is so good to be together this morning. Take your Bibles, please, and get them ready for Acts chapter number 2. It is Resurrection Sunday, and we like to say, like so many others, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We serve a living Savior, a risen Lord, and He is good, and His mercy endures forever. It may seem odd to uh, turn to Acts 2 this morning, and uh, you're thinking, hmm, I wasn't expecting that of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Interesting to go to Acts for the resurrection. Well, this morning, I'm going to do something that has become popular in uh, many churches, and that is to preach somebody else's sermon. Ha ha, take a breath, it's all good. I'm going to preach Peter's resurrection sermon uh, from Pentecost, and I'm going to do my best for that. Okay, that was a joke only a handful of you got, sorry. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about what's happening after the resurrection, because that's where we live. We read one of the gospel accounts there in Matthew 28 this morning, but uh, we're going to look at what's happening as the church is birthed in the shadow of the resurrection. Pastor Adrian Rogers from years ago shared this incredible little story about a spider who walked into a cave one day and found a lion asleep. Like all the creatures of the savannah, the spider feared the lion greatly. Uh, she decided that with the lion asleep, she could finally capture the lion. Can you imagine? All night long, she spun this web, and she spun, and she spun, and she spun, and she completely covered the lion, to the point that if you would have stepped in, you couldn't see the lion, you just would have seen a web. But sunrise came, the lion stirred, he got up and stretched, yawned with a great war, stepped out, walked out of the cave, and... Um, like it was nothing. All the spider's skill and strength were nothing compared to the gentle waking of the lion. Those same webs could easily trap so many insects and it would be fatal for them, but they could never hurt the king of the jungle. This morning we're here to worship the one true Savior that could not be held by the very thing that the rest of us cannot escape death. The fact that we're here this morning is one of the proofs that the lion of the tribe of Judah has shaken off the pains of death like a spider web and his roar still breaks their grip on us today. We're going to look at Acts 2. The day of Pentecost is a massive promise fulfilled by God. God promised in the Old Testament that He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. During His ministry, Jesus taught about the coming Holy Spirit and made the same promise in uh, the Bible in early parts of Acts. Acts 2 is a wonderful reminder that God keeps His promises. Peter will remind us this morning that the resurrection was a monumental promise kept. Jesus has blessed His church by putting His Spirit in us. That means He's given us gifts. We are living right now in the age of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came, and praise God, the Spirit 
stayed. <laughs> Praise God for that. One writer writes that the day of Pentecost was like a mayor installing a great water system in a city. From that point forward, every time a new home is built, households can connect to the water system. In other words, the day of Pentecost was the installation of God's new source of blessing and power and life and benefit for his people. Now, every person who turns to Christ taps into God himself. It only happens one time at the point of salvation, but the significance and the flow go on and on and on. Peter is standing to preach, explaining what is happening to the assembled people in Jerusalem. And he's going to preach one of the greatest sermons ever preached in Scripture. I said one of. Its, its place occupies the history of redemption. It's the inaugural age of grace. 3,000 are converted as a result. And by virtue, this is apostolic preaching at its finest. This morning, as we look at the text, look with me, please, at Acts chapter 2, and let's start in verse 22. I'm picking up a little bit into the sermon, because I don't know that any of you came to hear me just read a ton of Scripture today and then keep talking. So I want to pick up in the sermon, Peter addresses the folks and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. There's the first verse. Let me give you the header for the first section of Peter's sermon. I want to remind you of something. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was all a part of God's plan. It was ordained before the foundation of the world. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I sat under preaching early on in my Christian experience where the pastor made a statement and he said, if Judas would not have betrayed Jesus, God would have set up his earthly kingdom right then and there. And I was so young in the faith, I hadn't read all the Bible yet. I was like, well, that sounds right. Yeah, sure. I, that's, what a shame that Jesus got killed. Well, then you go on and read the scripture like, I don't think that's what that means. I don't think that's how that goes, right? Because if Christ would not have died on the cross, there'd be no remission of sins for anybody. They'd still have the sacrificial system in play. His ministry would have been a joke because he was coming to undo the thing that was normative in that day. So that doesn't really work. You need to understand that as horrible as it is for us to walk through the last week of Jesus' life with the scourgings and the betrayals and the beatings and the piercing and the hanging naked on a cross to die for crimes he did not commit. As awful as all of that is, Isaiah the prophet tells us in the Old Testament that it pleased the Father to bruise his son because it was a part of his plan. Peter is reminding the folks that this was all a part of God's plan. And in verse 22, he starts off by telling us, it's right there, that Jesus was a man unlike any other man that had walked the planet. Signs and wonders, mighty signs and wonders had accompanied him. Miracles were not violations of the laws of nature. Miracles were the restoration to make all things whole. That's what a miracle is. Jesus was a man unlike any other. 
Jesus' crucifixion was a plan unlike any other. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge, there it is, of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 23 reminds us that the crucifixion did not catch God off guard. Jewish people couldn't fathom a Messiah who would go down in defeat. I mean, if the Jewish people could give their Messiah a hashtag, it would have been winner, right? Hashtag winning. That would have been the byline of all the things. So for him to go down in defeat was unheard of. They reject parts of the Old Testament that point to Christ as a suffering Savior. This sermon Paul Peter is preaching rather will not win him any points among the hearers because he's describing the death of Jesus from both an earthly and a heavenly perspective. Here's what he's saying. God had this all planned, but you are guilty as charged. You don't get a pass because it's God's plan. God knew this. You crucified him. And then he goes on to say God will raise him up. Jesus couldn't be held by death. We'll get to that in a moment. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last time that through him, Jesus, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. I want to tell you this morning, Peter starts off, he's talked about the events. If you go back to verse 14 where he starts preaching, he's describing the events that are happening on the day of Pentecost. He's describing the outpouring of the Spirit, that incredible sign as the apostles were filled with the Spirit of God and began to preach to every tribe and nation that were there in their own native dialects and languages that they had never studied. It's an incredible sign and wonder. Go back and read it. But that's not the focus of the sermon. It was a description of what was happening. And then Peter gets to Jesus as quickly as he can. And he starts by saying this. God had all of this planned. I want to talk to you this morning for, for just a few moments as we work through the sermon. Let me give you this quick reminder. God has everything planned and he has all authority over all things. Do you hear that this morning? You may think your life is spinning out of control. You may not know what tomorrow is going to bring, but the Bible tells us we know the one who holds tomorrow. And he holds it in the palm of his hand, and he has never read a tweet that made him sweat. He's never flipped on the 24-hour news cycle and thought, what am I going to do about this? There is nothing spiraling from God's perspective. He has it all figured out, mapped out, and he is above all things, and he wins. Amen? Amen. God has it all planned. Then he continues on to say, let's look at man's best example. Here's the second point. Nothing natural changes death. So God has this big plan in place, But then we're confronted with the reality of death. And Peter's going to point to one of Israel's greatest heroes, David, to illustrate the point. Nothing natural changes death. This Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. We'll come back to 24 in a moment. 
Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will make, known, make me full of gladness in your presence. Peter points to David's life as an example that death is a certainty. Let's go back to Jesus for a moment and then we'll land on this pointing to David. Uh, Nothing changes the reality of death. It's said in our vernacular today, there are two things for certain for the American citizen, right? Uh, Death and taxes. April 15th is right around the corner. But here's the reality, you can skip out on taxes. We'll bring you a Bible in prison. That's how that works now, right? I don't know if you've seen the the little things of these 20-something-year-olds that are stepping out into their careers for the first time and these little videos they're doing. They're like, okay, so in every other country, there's like a flat rate. It's pretty easy to figure out. In America, this guy goes to the IRS office and says, how much do I owe you? And the IRS office says, oh, we know how much you owe us. He's like, yeah, yeah, can you just tell me? He's like, no, 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 you do some math. He's like, just tell me how much I owe you. No, no, you, you do the math. Oh, what if I get it wrong? Do I get a letter or something? No, no, you go to jail. <laughs> well, why don't you just tell me how much I owe you? You do the math. What if I get it wrong? You go to jail. <laughs> Taxes are a certainty, even if we don't know how much they are in this nation. But death is inescapable regardless of who you are. 100% of the people born die. Nothing changes this. No natural law changes this. Could God raise the Messiah from the dead? We have record of one of his own, we have record that his own disciples standing there seem to be shocked at the resurrection. Death by crucifixion seemed too big of an obstacle. Jesus was crucified on the cross, and that completely overturned all of the disciples thinking about the way this was going to go down. There's no way that God's true Messiah would die that kind of death. In Deuteronomy 21, God had told his people that the person that hung on a cross was cursed. Why? Because they were either a blasphemer or a traitor. Imagine with me this death on the cross. If Matthew had ended at chapter 27, if Mark had ended at chapter 15, if if Luke had stopped at chapter 23, if John had ended at chapter 19, we would be miserable. Miserable. Paul would clearly illustrate this in 1 Corinthians 15 on the reality of death and the need for something supernatural to intervene. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 19, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? There has to be supernatural intervention. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that He raised Christ whom He didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Wow. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Now, Jesus didn't die a pathetic victim on a cross. He laid down his life in fulfillment of the sovereign plan of the sovereign God who purposed to sum up all of the Godhead in Christ. We dive back into Acts 2. Peter's going to illustrate that death is final, is final by quoting David's psalm, Psalm 16. He then summarizes in verse 29. He says, I'm going to say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Do you get that? David's a hero. And he's saying your hero, Israel's hero, has died, buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Ashley and I have been to what is recorded as the tomb of David. We couldn't get to it together because when you go, you have to enter on two sides of the venue. Men on one side, ladies on the other side. We've been there. We've seen where David is buried. And it is a closed tomb, reported. It's closed and sealed because there's something in there. Now, we can have an archaeological discussion later, but there's something in there. David, though, while he was living, had this vision of hope from God to recognize there was something beyond death, something miraculous beyond death. It was a realization that God would not abandon his covenant children in the life to come. Somehow, in some way, there was life beyond the grave. David died, and we could go to his tomb together sometime. Peter then reasons he must have been talking about one of his descendants. David's descendants would rule on David's throne. And one of David's descendants would rule forever. This is Christ. We know that. Centuries before Jesus died and was resurrected, do you get this? David, a prophet, was prophesying of the Messiah's resurrection. Wow. In the Psalms that we set to music, God keeps one of his most monumental promises that Christ would raise to life. God always keeps his promises. And I don't know which ones are flooding your mind in this moment. Maybe it's the one that says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. You have been saved if you are in Christ, and I want to remind you of another derivation of that word. You are safe in Christ. Maybe it's John 15. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I love it. The songwriter of modern day said, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. It came from Christ himself. Maybe the promise you cling to today is the one that we all love so deeply and dearly. Some of us have had to say it by faith, late in the midnight hour, crying tears, wondering if anybody hears us, if our situation is going to change, and the word of the Lord comes to us and says, remember, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. You may feel lonely, but you are not alone. God keeps his promises. Jesus is the ultimate promise keeper. Peter's sermon is full of Jesus. He talks about the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Death is not overcome by natural means, and neither is pride or sin. You may think you can overcome that on yourself, by yourself rather, but you can't. Peter couldn't. Let's take a moment and examine the credentials of the preacher this morning. 
just 50 days before the sermon was preached. Peter committed the greatest denial of Christ in history. He was always first in everything. Peter was first on the water. He was first, unfortunately, with his mouth so many times. He was first with the sword. On Passover night, he was first to run and plunge into the fastest personal spiral in history. His pride and presumption prepared the way for his infamous plunge when with words he had not used in years, he denied knowing Jesus. After he denied the Lord, a profound sense of emptiness, as profound as he had ever known, washed over him and no natural solution could help him. He couldn't reason his way to better life. He couldn't come to his senses on his own. He needed the help of God himself. It would take an encounter with the resurrected Christ on the shores of Galilee for that emptiness to be washed away by love. Love for God. Love for the people of God, for the sheep, for the lambs of all ages and stages. His emptiness would change to fullness as the Holy Spirit would fill him to the brim on the day of Pentecost to overflowing and he would preach a message that was simple and scriptural and Christ-centered and convicting and practical and attention-getting and relevant, the greatest apostolic sermon in the New Testament. Peter is pointing us to Jesus, reminding us that God had everything planned. Death is a certainty. David proves that. But then this reality, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. I've scattered some scriptures up there to make that point through his sermon. But you'll see them in verse 21. Even before we got into our original text this morning, Here's something that seems impossible. How can sinful, rebellious man have a relationship with God? How does that work? Well, just before we got into verse 22, Peter had said, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verse 24, the impossible meets with God, when it says God raised Jesus up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible, there it is, for him to be held by it. In verses 32 and 33, impossibility meets with God. When Jesus raised up, God raised Jesus up, and of that we are all witnesses. Remember, Peter is preaching to folks that had seen Jesus walking around after the resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I'm not here to talk about your impossible situation in your finances or in your health or in your circumstances or in your relationship. I'm here to talk about something dynamite, dynamically more explosive and monumental than that that squashes all of those earthly realities. I'm not trying to minimize them, but to tell you they fade in comparison to the fact that Jesus Christ kept His word. Peter is reminding people that the impossible meets the possible God. This Jesus who lived a perfect life, this Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross, this Jesus on whom God placed the sins 
of the whole world. And I have to say it again because it keeps creeping up in pastors who are apostatizing in front of me day and night, night and day, denying the substitutionary sacrifice, the penal substitutionary death that Christ paid for our sins on the cross. It happens. Scripture records that it happens. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. The worst of us was laid on Jesus so that the best of him could be laid on us. That's the Bible. That's not a doctrine of man. Jesus died for us, absorbing that wrath. Jesus was resurrected on the third day. Jesus was seen by more than 500 people. Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. What Peter's saying we have in our song today, he is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You talk about impossible meeting God. How in the world can that be the case? Because God knew it. He planned it. It's his story. We're just living in it. God is amazing. Peter reminds the people that they can call on Jesus. Peter reminds the crowd that Jesus is the exalted one. Peter shows them how Jesus has now sent the Holy Spirit to his people. What a God. He is indeed the resurrection and the life. He is indeed the one who can give that life and all who put their faith in him will never die. It's simple. Jesus was not only raised to life, he is life himself. Death couldn't conquer life. The message Peter preached was not about an abstract idea. He didn't say God can overcome it or death could not hold it. He said death couldn't hold him. Jesus Christ. Nothing is impossible with God. Not even death can hold Jesus. Christ came into his own and his own rejected him. Remember this. His love was spurned. His purity had been trampled. His truth had been buried. But he still loved. It never faltered. He was still pure. That never wavered. He was still the truth. That stood fast. Jesus Christ was raised to life. He was dead, buried, and raised to life. And one day this merciful Jesus will return as king. He will come back to rule with a rod of iron. And the most powerful of men will run and hide in fear of him if they are not in Christ. C.S. Lewis captures this masterfully. It's been a while since I've quoted C.S. Lewis. Couldn't wait. Captures this masterfully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy is asking questions to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. That's the lion, the character of Christ, the representative of Christ in there. Lucy says, is, is he a man? Aslan a man? Mr. Beaver says sharply. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Sarah. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking. They're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, 
said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And he is the king. I tell you, he's the king. Sin, death, and hell itself aren't safe from this line. They're but a web that can't withstand one roar. It's amazing. Peter preached with power and he preached requiring a response. You ever get those emails that say response required? Attention needed. That's at the header of the email. That's at the header of the message. Uh, I don't know that he had a t-shirt on, but he probably would have branded it at that point that says response required. He preaches this. Let's see what happens in the rest of our passage. Take your Bibles and look at verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. Can I say a word about that phrase there? When that phrase appears throughout the New Testament, a lot of times it's the Pharisees rending their garments. They're so angry at something Jesus has said, they tear their garments. They're so angry about something. In fact, Jesus uh, just retold a tale of the day with the uh, father who had two sons. And this kind of a nuance of this word shows up there with the Pharisees and said, and then they put it in their heart to kill him. I always wondered at that when I was young in the faith. I'm like, he tells a story and they want to kill him? Wow, some story. Um, here it is. They were cut to the heart. They were angry. What were they angry about? They're actually angry about their own sin. We'll see it in a moment. They're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, and he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you to notice the response. He didn't stand up front and say, I'm going to now call for a response. The preaching of the word demanded a response. I've had some ask before when they come and, and visit Grace Covenant Church, why don't you call for a response? And my response is, I always preach calling for a response. The word does it. And invariably, we have men and women and boys and girls respond, sometimes in the service, sometimes later on in the week. But they respond to the text. All of us have to respond to the preached word of God. You either receive it, reject it. You respond with worship or rebellion, obedience or sacrifice. It's, it's just the way it goes. They needed to turn from their sins and accept God's free gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And then as a sign of that, to be baptized, just like 22 of our own number have done in the past two and a half years. Has that dawned on you? 22 have made public profession of faith. Incredible. Peter's sermon shows us how the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and works it into people's hearts. You know what? 
This week, as you lift up Jesus in your own life, in your marriage, in your home, in your single life, on your job, wherever it is, on vacation, when nobody's watching, when you're lifting up Jesus and, and, and maybe you're reaching out to that loved one, that friend, that coworker, that family member that you have that's near and dear to you but far from Jesus, ask the Lord to send His precious Holy Spirit to convict them and cut them to the heart so that they would respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning or there and you recognize that the God of this Bible alone is all-powerful and you are not all-powerful. As you take an honest look at your life, you, you recognize you are headed for destruction like all of us were before we were in Christ. It's impossible for you to change on your own, but I've come to preach another man's sermon to you this morning to remind you that God works in the impossible. He sent His Son who lived, bled, died, and rose again. And if you are being cut to the heart, repent. Trust Jesus. Be baptized. Let God's Holy Spirit lead and guide you to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you're saved this morning, God is calling us to trust Him, to walk in that newness of life. You may have a friend or family member that is, as far as you know, is running as fast and as far as they can from God, and you think every effort has been exhausted, there's no hope for them. I've come to encourage you this morning to tell you nothing is impossible with God and you my sister you my brother are a part of God's plan to be salt and light to them to share the good news of the resurrected king with them if you're here this morning and you are cut to the heart and want to respond I want to tell you he'll save you he'll receive you he'll wash you and one day he'll take you to heaven and you can spend all eternity worshiping ruling and reigning with him, God is still in the business of raising people to life. In Ephesians 2, I want to close with this just before we pray. Now, this is for most of us in the room that are in Christ. And, and maybe you're watching or in the room and you're not yet in Christ. This can be your reality. But I love how Paul captures it. It says, and you, that's us, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive we were dead he's made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me remind you this morning, 
We have been raised to life. The gospel came to us on the way to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. You are a part of God's plan this week. Brother or sister, share the gospel like Peter did. Use the scripture. Talk about the Savior. Watch the Spirit at work and see sinners become saints for the glory of God as they are raised to life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And when we mention the cross, we're speaking of the death, burial, and the resurrection of our King. Thank you, Father, for so loving us that you gave your only Son. Thank you, Father, for so loving us that you sent your Spirit that has made us alive today. Help us to walk in that newness of life. We celebrated it last Sunday with those six Precious souls who identified buried with your death in baptism and raised to newness of life. Lord, many an accusation are being made of Christians today in our society. I pray that it would be accused and it would be a crime that would stick for the folks of Grace Covenant Church that we've been transformed by the power of God. We've rejected the old ways of our flesh and death. And we are walking in newness of life, living and loving like we're looking for our King to come back any day. In Jesus' name, amen.